Well, good morning, my church. My name is Christy, and I just want to say when they break out that prison-shaking song, you know it's going to be a good day at my church. Um, they are fantastic. I wish I could take you band member by band member. We got to do that and tell you their stories. Ben over here used to be MTV's go-to guy before he gave his heart to Christ. Now he's raising a daughter to love Jesus, married to an incredible girl. I wish I could tell you story by story. Um, get to know them. They are, they are some incredible people. I want to welcome you. If you're a guest at my church, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We say around here that we exist to help people find their way back to God. What that means is wherever you come from, wherever you're headed, you are welcome here. We welcome all people from all walks of life, and our hope is to help you take just one step closer to understanding the God who created you, who has a plan for you, who has a purpose for you. I don't know about you. We, you, you know that you're getting older when you start going to bed by watching the news every night. It started for us about five years ago, and we're like, okay, we're officially old now. And it's not always encouraging to do that. This morning, you are going to be so encouraged about your future, the future of your family, the future of our country. So you have come, if you're visiting, on a great day. Um, I want to brag a little bit on my church because y'all have done some incredible things lately. You may or may not know this. We have a competitive cheerleading team here. It's part of a program called Impact Cheerleading. It's the first one in Columbus. And the best way I know how to describe it, it's kind of like upward basketball, except you have to work hard and actually win something to get a trophy. <laughs> so our girls here at my church, they both won trophies last weekend in Atlanta. They were on the big stage with the big, yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> The, the win in it was not just the trophy or the hard work. The win was we had a granddad who told us this is the only church my kids get. My girls love cheerleading. And when they go to this competition, they hear the gospel. They hear that God loves them. And so that is the win in that. Also want to brag on all of you who are a part of Trunk or Treat last night. If you were out there on the new My Church land, it was crazy, crazy fun. Hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. There's a verse in the Bible that says the meadows are covered with flocks, and that's how it was. They just kept coming, kept coming. I heard that we bought out all the candy at Walmart, three places around, and we were still running out of candy. Um, so thank you to all of you who dressed up, who participated in that. What I really want you to know about last night is this. You weren't just celebrating a fun, festive event. You were changing somebody's family heritage. And I want to tell you a quick story while I introduce our speaker for today. 65 years ago, a church moved into a neighborhood in Detroit. It was before Facebook. So instead of pumping a truck or treat on Facebook like we did this weekend, somebody went around knocking on doors, inviting kids to a fun event. My grandmother, who had two wild boys, said, take them. She sent my dad and my uncle to this event at church where they had never heard the name of Jesus before. But for the first time, they heard, there's a God who loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, and you can have your sins forgiven and go to heaven. And in blue-collar Detroit, it was free. And he said, sign me up for that. My dad, who grew up in a truck driver's family, who never heard the name Jesus or read the Bible in his home, gave his life to Christ through a kids' event because of a church who moved into the neighborhood, who cared about reaching people who were far from God. My church, that's what we do. Because of that, my entire heritage has been changed. He now has like seven earned doctorate degrees. I remember my mother telling him, if you go back to school one more time, I'm going to leave you. <laughs> 
He's become kind of the leading authority on Bible teaching. He's the dean of religion at Liberty University. They've taught hundreds and thousands of kids. A lot of you have online degrees from Liberty University. But what I love about him when he comes here is that he is a real-life example that it is possible for our God who is a chain breaker to break your family tradition, to break the alcoholism or bondage, whatever it was that you were in. And he is a real-life example of, the, of a first-generation Christian who had to figure out, how do I lead my family to follow Christ? And so I want y'all to welcome my dad. We call him Papa Ed, one of the most generous people I know. He helped us launch this church. He helped sustain it. Dad, I love you. I am so grateful that God chose you and that you have changed our family heritage. And I'm just so proud that our church can see that it is possible to be a first-generation Christian and make a difference. Thank you so much for being here. I love you. Well, I said in the last service, after her inductions, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. But thank you, darling, very, very much. It's always good to be here at my church. Uh, We have been uh, with you uh, in person so many times and in prayer all the time uh, for God's blessing uh, on uh, your families, your lives, and on your future. uh, That uh, God called Jeff and Christy here uh, so many years ago now to launch this church and to see what God has done. It was amazing last night to be there and see hundreds and hundreds of people at that event uh, and to realize uh, that uh, God's giving you an opportunity to touch uh, their lives. Remind you this morning, uh, the notes for the message as they appear on the screen or on the back of the flyer. Uh, So if you want to follow along, uh, you don't have to write it down. It's right there. You can add to it uh, if you like to do that. And uh, Also, those of you that uh, have uh, family connection at Liberty, thank you for your prayers and your encouragement. We have 15,000 students on campus right now and about another 85,000 online. So there are around 100,000 people taking uh, coursework at Liberty uh, in various areas. If you're interested in that, if you just Google up liberty.edu, it'll all come up. And uh, you can take a look at it. We have uh, uh, about a fourth of our students online are in the military. We're also in the process right now of training more military chaplains at Liberty than any other school uh, in the world. Uh, We just had all the head uh, chaplains of the different agencies uh, and different parts of uh, the armed forces uh, on our campus for a conference a couple of weeks ago, and I had the privilege of meeting them. So uh, thank you for your prayers, for your encouragement. But I want to talk to you today about the battle for the culture. Uh, You've had this battle theme lately, uh, and part of the challenge is how do we as believers interact with change that's going on in our own culture today? Uh, It's obvious uh, that sometimes life is a journey, and you're on the journey step by step. Sometimes... Uh, It's a wild ride. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's a rocket launch, uh, and sometimes it's a real battle. Uh, I don't need to remind you that our culture in America uh, is changing uh, dramatically. Uh, Someone has said that a culture is dying when what used to be celebrated is condemned. And what used to be condemned is celebrated, 
and those that refuse to celebrate are marginalized, you have a culture uh, that is going away. Uh, in America today, it's a time of biblical illiteracy, theological ignorance, uh, moral indulgence, and uh, social instability. We're a more divided culture uh, than we have ever been, uh, and sometimes, especially here in the South, where Christian influence uh, has been so strong for so long, you find yourself kind of in a minority all of a sudden, and you're not used to that. Uh, that uh, Christian thinking is really no longer the way the culture is thinking as it moves away from God. Now sometimes that's simply because uh, there's a lot of cultural Christian influence, the crosses, the symbols, the Ten Commandments, the plaques, the whatever, uh, the holidays, but that didn't make people real believers, real Christians. Didn't mean their lives were really changed. It simply meant they were kind of going along uh, with the culture. It's kind of like the characters on Downton Abbey. Uh, they would only get religious when it was a holiday or a funeral uh, or a wedding. Otherwise, God was never a part of the show. Uh, they were just kind of doing their own thing. Uh, well, that's a lot of Americans. They're really just doing their own thing until it's time to have a wedding or a funeral. Then it's like, got to find a church. So as cultural Christianity dies in this culture, and it is dying, real Christianity then sticks out. Uh, people begin to realize, oh, there are some people that really believe this stuff, that have really committed themselves to Christ personally and are committed to living their faith in that culture. Uh, the whole emphasis uh, is the battle for the culture uh, that we face today. And what happens in our culture uh, is fivefold. Uh, you have a wave of secularism uh, that is very, very strong in the Western world today. It has totally captured Europe. Uh, it is in the process of capturing America and with it this kind of wave of angry atheism. In my generation, if somebody wasn't a believer, their attitude was kind of like, well, you can believe that if you want to, but not me, man. I'm out. Don't bother me. Today it's an angry atheism. They're mad because you believe. Uh, they're upset uh, because you believe in a God. How can there be a God and they let these things happen? Uh, and we're just mad at God. I thought you said you didn't believe in God. Uh, why don't you get mad at the planet? Uh, get mad at evolutionary process. Oh, natural selection. Darn you, you're eliminating me. Uh, they don't do that. Uh, they're mad at God, cursing God, upset with the God. They don't even believe it. Uh, in a secular culture that has decided there is no God. And if there is no God, then there really is no truth because there's no ultimate reality. There's no ultimate right and wrong. Truth then becomes relative to your own experience. What's true for you may not be true for somebody else. You shouldn't impose your ideas on other people, uh, etc. And in a relativistic culture, there are no virtues left. The only virtue that remains is tolerance. Tolerate every view and every idea because no one view is really true. And relativism then leads to selfism. If there's no God and there's no truth, then I'm my own reality. I'm all that matters, me, myself, and I. We live in a self-centered, self-absorbed culture where people walk around with their phone doing what? Communicating? No, taking selfies uh, and sending it to everybody. Here I am. Here's what I had for breakfast. I don't really care. Uh, but uh, that happens all the time in a self-absorbed culture. 
and then selfism leads eventually to materialism. If I'm all that matters, then I got to have stuff. And the more stuff I have, the happier I will be, right? No. Stuff will make you happy temporarily, but your stuff gets old, it gets out of style, and you keep needing more stuff. And the more stuff we get, pretty soon we realize all my stuff doesn't love me back. My stuff doesn't give me meaning and significance. It leaves me kind of empty. And that leads to, believe it or not, mysticism. And that's where we are today. If God's not real, what is? Maybe there's an alternate universe out there. Maybe there are zombies. Ah, uh, whatever. Uh, anything can be real except the God of the Bible. And all of a sudden you begin to realize the culture has shifted dramatically. Now that shift started back in the 20th century. Uh, it reached a crescendo in the 60s uh, with God out of the public schools. There were good people still trying to do the right thing in the public schools, but the system was moving away from God. Uh, with God out of public life in America, we are living in a culture that is becoming less spiritually focused all the time. So when you stand up for God and speak up for a spiritual issue, you feel like, man, I'm standing against the tide of the culture. And there's a tendency to think, I should just kind of disappear, uh, go hide. Uh, I'm tired of arguing with people at work or trying to share my belief with somebody at school or whatever. And I want to take us back in time today to a very similar time in the history of the nation of Israel in a story in the Bible that's 3,000 years old. Now, let me set the framework for you. In the biblical story in the Old Testament, King David rises to leadership in Israel, battles off all the enemies, fights with everybody, wins the war, conquers the uh, nation, and moves the capital to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and the people of Israel have finally succeeded in the promised land. He dies, hands the kingdom to his son Solomon, and Solomon gets the kingdom on a platter. He's rich and he's wealthy and he's successful and he loves building buildings and he builds a palace and a temple and uh, refurbishes the cities of Israel, etc. And the culture of Israel reaches its highest heights. But then Solomon died. Time moves on. Cultures change. But human nature really does not. And eventually Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Now, uh, he's going to face a challenge from a usurper named Jeroboam. So to help my students at Liberty remember this, I say, look, think of Rehoboam as the real Boam. He's David's grandson, Solomon's son. He's the king who's in the line of Christ. But Jeroboam is a jerk. So you've got real Boam and Jerkboam, if you will, and Jerkboam decides, I don't like real Boam. He raises the taxes. Uh, I'm upset with him. He won't listen to anybody. We should split this kingdom. And in the biblical story, the northern tribes seceded. They walked away from Jerusalem, from the temple, from the line of King David, and they decided, we don't need the line of King David. We don't need the line of the Messiah. We don't need Jerusalem. We don't need the temple. We don't really need God. We're going to do it ourselves. And for the next 200 years, they went their own way. They did their own thing. 
They had 20 kings in 200 years. Every one of them died lost. Every one of them walked away from God. And about 100 years into this, it was so bad, so spiritually dark, there were hardly any real believers left among the northern tribes in the northern kingdom. And uh, God had to raise up a prophet who was tough, mean, uh, battle-trained, so to speak, spiritually. He wasn't afraid of anybody. He would tell you the truth, whether you liked it or not, till he finally felt like, I'm the only one left. God, they've all abandoned you and forgotten you. They're all doing their own thing. I'm the only one left alive at all. And finally, the king, Ahab, the Jewish king in northern Israel, was himself so far away from God, he marries a pagan princess by the name of Jezebel, who loves the god Baal, hence her name, Jezebel, Baal, uh, and she hates Jehovah, she hates the God of the Bible, she hates everything about Jerusalem, she hates the people of the line of David, etc. She's the power behind the throne. And finally, they steal a man's property, kill him, uh, and they're crooked as can be behind the scenes, and the prophet Elijah shows up at the palace, looks at them both and says, Ahab, the day will come, the dogs will lick your blood, and Jezebel, the dogs will eat you. End of sermon, goodbye, I'm out of here. Boom, he leaves. Later, that did happen, but not yet. Time moves on, uh, and uh, the Baal religion is growing, the religion of Jehovah is declining, uh, and finally, uh, they start saying to Elijah, you're politically incorrect, pal. You're out of step with the culture. You're out of step with what's going on these days. Uh, we ought to get ready for you. And he says, all right, I tell you what, let's have a contest. I prayed three years ago that it would stop raining, and we're in a drought. It hasn't rained for three years, he said. So you take your prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel, a real mountain in Israel. I've been there 15 times. Uh, and uh, I'll come to Mount Carmel. You tell your prophets to build an altar to Baal, the Canaanite storm god, the god who sends the rain, the god who's depicted on ancient monuments with a lightning bolt in his hand. And let the god who answers by fire, who sends down the lightning bolt on the altar, let him be God. Quit trying to say, I'll get Jehovah part of the time and Baal part of the time. I'll be religious part of the time, but not part of the time. I'm kind of in two worlds here. And I'll build an altar to Jehovah, and we'll see who sends the fire. Now, many of you know that story. They came to Mount Carmel. There were 450 prophets of Baal. They prayed, and they screamed, and they cried, and they danced, and they worked themselves into a frenzy, and they leaped on the altar, and they prayed all day long, and nothing happened. Elijah, at the end of the day, took 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, all of them, including the 10 northern tribes and the southern tribes, put them all together, laid the animal on the altar, prayed a very simple prayer. Dear God, let them know that you're God, that I'm your prophet, and that I did what you told me to do, send the fire. 
boom, the lightning bolt fell on the altar, consumed the sacrifice, burned up the stones, licked up the dust, scared the living daylights out of people, and everybody fell on their face and said, Jehovah is God, Jehovah is God. I guess so. Uh, frightened the daylights out of them. And then he said, kill the prophets of Baal. And they did. And then he told Ahab, the king, get in your chariot, get off the mountain, it's going to rain. Well, it hadn't rained for three and a half years because he had said so. Now he said it's going to rain. Ahab starts driving the chariot down the mountain, and while he's going, a huge rainstorm comes in off the Mediterranean and soaks everybody. It's pouring rain by the end of the day. King Ahab has been publicly humiliated, upstaged by the prophet, think this old guy, kind of like Billy Graham type, uh, and uh, he's defeated, he's humiliated, he's wet. And he has to come home and face Hillary, I mean Jezebel, uh, and uh, he walks in and she's asking him, honey, how did it go today up on Mount Carmel? Not too good, Judge. You wouldn't believe uh, the old guy. He prayed and the fire fell, and boom, that was, wow, that was really something. I think even he was convicted. But she hears this and says, I'll find that prophet tomorrow, and I'll kill him myself. Now, Elijah's not afraid of the king. He's not afraid of the false prophets. He's not afraid of a dying culture, but he was scared to death of her. Uh, and when he heard she wanted him dead, he gets up and he runs for 40 days into the wilderness. I teach Old Testament at Liberty. You've got to keep telling the rest of the story. Uh, he hides in a cave down at Mount Sinai. It's, he's all snuggled up in there like, they all hate God. They all hate me. He's just come from this mountaintop spiritual victory, and he's depressed. He's discouraged. He actually feels defeated because he doesn't see hearts changing. And sometimes we get that way. Uh, when we're in a political season like we are right now, it is so divided and so divisive, and you get so frustrated, you just want to go hide. You're like, oh, I'm tired of the whole thing. Uh, everybody's mad at everybody. Our country is so divided. We're moving in opposite directions. What in the world is going to happen? People at work are giving me a hard time. I wish I could just go hide. So we pick him up this morning in the cave. Uh, if you have your Bible, if not, it'll be on the screen. First uh, Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 19. Chapter 18, the confrontation on Mount Carmel. The fire fell. God came through. Chapter 19, Elijah ran and hid in the cave. And God had to come and get him out of the cave. Now you have this contrast in the story between Elijah and Elisha. Elijah's the older man, and his name means, my God is Yah, Jehovah. Uh, Elisha's name means God is salvation. He's a young man who's going to enter the story. But at this point, it's all about Elijah hiding in the cave and the confrontation with God. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, it says uh, that he entered into a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
Elijah, what are you doing hiding in that cave? And his response was, well, what do you mean? I, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and for the Israelites up in the north. They've abandoned your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Ah! You ever feel that way? I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one in my unit. I'm the only one at work. Whatever. You're not. Uh, but it seems that way. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. In other words, what he was saying is, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm hiding in this cave. They're trying to kill me. That's what's going on. Where have you been? God said, uh, I want to talk to you. Come out of the cave. All right. So he walks over to the precipice of the edge of the cave. And the verses go on to say that's when God sent the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire. And he wasn't impressed. He'd seen all that stuff before. But then he heard a still, small voice of conviction calling to him. Some translations call it a whisper. God was whispering in his soul. And maybe there are times God whispers in your soul about things. Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing in the cave? It's the same question. He starts to give the same excuse. And God then says, no, 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 no. I've got a commission for you, pal. I've got a job for you to do. I want you to get out of the cave, quit feeling sorry for yourself, and get back to action. Well, what do you want me to do? Uh, and the Lord said to him, in verse uh, 15, uh, Go and return by the way that you came to Damascus. Same Damascus in Syria that's still there today. It was there then, 3,000 years ago. Go to Damascus and anoint Haziel to be the king over Aramea, Syria, your enemy. I want you to change everything politically, socially, and spiritually. I want you to go and anoint the next king of the enemy nation. He'll deal with the immediate threat. And then secondly, I want you to anoint Jehu to be the king over northern Israel. Jehu is this wild chariot driver He's out of control, uh, reminds me of somebody, uh, and uh, he hates everybody, he's mad at everybody, he wants to kill everybody, he's constantly out of control, and he's going to eliminate the opposition. So God is going to use the new king of Syria to attack Israel, and in that attack, Ahab is going to be killed. God is going to use this guy Jehu, the wild chariot driver, to eliminate Jezebel and get rid of her. But he doesn't know this yet. And then he said, and I want you to anoint Elisha to be the next prophet to take your place. You are not alone. I have still 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knees to Baal. Now get out of the cave, quit feeling sorry for yourself, and get back to work and reach the next generation. You get older, you feel like, man, we're running out of time. Because you're running out of time. Uh, I get that. We're running out of time. Uh, and we're concerned, what's going to happen next? Well, what we need to do as parents and grandparents is realize 
Our job is to do what? Train the next generation. Influence the next generation because they will follow us eventually. They're the ones that have to make a difference. We can't fix their generation. We have to deal with our generation. But we can train the next generation to be prepared to make a difference in their generation. So Elijah left the cave and he went straight looking for the preacher. Uh, he didn't go find the two kings yet. He went first of all to find Elisha. And it says in verse 19, Elijah left there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, plowing with twelve teams of oxen in front of him, and he with the twelfth. He's a nobody. He's at the end of the line plowing a field because it just rained finally. And there's twelve guys in front of him. He's eating the dirt and the dust from the people in front of him. And Elijah runs by. He never slows down. He left there, ran after him, and as he walked by him, he threw his mantle over him. Now the mantle would be a Jewish prayer shawl. Uh, maybe something like this one. Uh, I don't think it was this nice because he was an old guy, he'd been around a long time. They would wear this thing over their shoulders with the fringes. They'd put it over their head when they wanted to pray, etc. And as he ran by, he threw the mantle on the young man. Now, the young man knows what this means. You're calling me to be your disciple. You're asking me to follow you by faith. I, I, I leave the plow, leave the oxen, leave the farm, leave the job, and go follow you. So Elisha runs after him and says, wait, before I follow you, I need to kiss my father and mother goodbye. Let me go back and kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go back, he replied, for what have I done to you? Kiss, he's mad at him. Kiss your mom and dad? Are you crazy? I'm out there risking my life for God. The old lady wants to kill me. Uh, and you want to go back and kiss your mom and dad goodbye? I got the wrong person, pal. Elisha gets it and says, all right, wait a minute. Instead, he goes back, kills the oxen, burns the plow, sacrifices the ox to God. What's he doing? He's burning his bridge behind him. There's no job to go back to now. There's nothing else to do. All right, I'll come, be your disciple, I'll follow you, and I'll do what you want. And there's a point in our lives when God calls us to follow Him, to say you're all in or you aren't. Uh, it either is true or it isn't. It means something or it doesn't. And at that moment, that one step of faith changes everything in our lives. Elisha said, I'll go and follow you. As you read on in the Old Testament, in the years that follow, they start reaching people in every city they go to. Pretty soon there are 50 prophets in this town and 50 prophets in that town, 50 prophets in another town. And God was going to use them in their lifetime to turn back the tide of evil and darkness for the next hundred years. A hundred years later, yes, northern Israel would fall under the judgment of God but not in their lifetime. They were determined, I'm going to do what's necessary to stand up for God and the truth and see my generation turn this thing around and God withheld the judgment for over a hundred years because of their influence. Time moves on in the story. 
We come to 2 Kings, the next book, chapter 2. Elijah is now even older. He's about to go to heaven. And uh, Elisha is traveling with him. And they're moving from town to town. Look at 2 Kings, chapter 2, verse 1. When the time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah said to Elisha, we're traveling to Gilgal, and I'm going on to Bethel. Uh, He goes from one town to another, Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, and then down to the Jordan River. Uh, The old man's moving around on his last day on earth. And every time they go to another town, 50 prophets come out that they've trained and say to the young man, you know what's going to happen today. God has revealed to us, today's the day he's taking the old man home to heaven. And Elisha says, yeah, I know, but don't remind me, because then I'll be responsible. And Elijah looks at him and says, God's sending me to the Jordan River. Now, I've been to Jericho many, many times. Christy and Jeff have been there with me. When you're in Jericho, still there today, you can see the Jordan River in the distance. They go down to the river, and when they got to the river, Elijah takes the mantle and throws it in the river, and the water parts. Now, in the Old Testament, you've got three water-parting miracles. Moses led the children of Israel in the Exodus to the Red Sea, and the water parted. They went across on dry land. Joshua, 40 years later, led the army of Israel to the Jordan River, and they took the Ark of the Covenant into the river, and the water parted, and they went in and conquered the land. Now, years later, the prophets come to the river. They're on, we'll call this side of the room, the West Bank. They're going to cross over to the East Bank, what today would be the country of Jordan. He throws the mantle in the water, the water parts, picks the mantle up, they're on the East Bank, and they're walking along, and he says to the young man, today's the day God's taken me home. If there's anything you need, you better ask me real quick. And Elisha said, I'm not you. You're old and mean and tough. Uh, You call down fire. You strike people dead. You're not afraid of anybody. I do little simple miracles. I made an axe head swim. I chased away some bears. I I purified some water. Uh, I'm not you. And uh, I need a double portion. I need a double portion of your power and your spirit and a double portion of the spirit of God. And Elijah looked at him and said, that's a tough thing, kid. I don't know if you'll get it. If you see me when I go, you got it. If you don't, kind of now you see me, now you don't, you didn't get it. They walk on and suddenly the chariot of fire appears uh, and separates the two of them. Uh, And Elisha is stunned. The old man is caught up in a whirlwind into the chariot. And the chariot's ablaze with fire and boosh, they're out of there. And Elisha's standing there going, My father, my father, his spiritual father. It's the chariot of Israel. And it's like the old man is saying, yeah, kid, I know, I got a ticket and I'm gone. See ya. Boosh, I'm out of here. Raptured away alive in the Old Testament. But as he's raptured away, suddenly the mantle fell off. And the mantle was left on the ground. Elisha stares at the sky for a while and he looks down at the mantle. And he realizes, my turn, my generation. He picks the mantle up, walks back to the river, and the river's closed in again. 
throws the mantle into the river and the water parts again. He crosses over onto the west bank to Jericho. The sons of the prophets, the students, the disciples they're called, run to him and say, the power of Elijah is on you. The power of God is on you. You're the teacher. We'll follow you. And in every generation, it is as though the spiritual generations before us have left behind a mantle of their heritage. It's a symbol. There's no magic in the mantle. The idea was the symbol of from one generation to the next to the next. And Elisha ends up in the Bible doing twice as many miracles as Elijah. The double portion. The double blessing that landed on him. And it's through him and those that he influenced that God would hold back war, judgment, chaos, uh, etc. The Syrians would not conquer them. Israel's nation would stay stable. And God would give them another hundred years. Now, I don't know how much time is left in the plan of God. But there are times that we feel like, God, give us another year. Give us ten more. Give us twenty more. If you're young, you're saying, give me a lifetime, etc. The question is, will you pick up the mantle of faith and say, God, I'm all in. I'm committed to serving you. Whatever you want me to do, I don't even know what it is. Elisha had no idea what was coming ahead. But he was willing to say, yes, I'll follow you. Yes, I'll pick up the mantle and I'll reach my generation for God. And God used them to make a huge difference in the nation of Israel in their lifetime. You and I can't guarantee what will happen a hundred years from now. But we can make a difference right now. We can make a difference in our generation right now. And those of you that are younger, the real hope of the future is you. If I were to draw five simple principles out of the story, I would suggest these things. The core principles are that, first of all, it's never as bad as you think it is. We always think it's worse than it is because we see the worst evidence. Secondly, don't focus on the problems. If you become so problem conscious, you're frozen and you can't move. Look for solutions to the problems. And one of those solutions is train the next generation. Now, whether we like it or not, we're training our children all the time by what we say, but also by what we do, by our actions as well as our words. You're influencing the next generation. So the stability of your marriage, the commitment of your spiritual life, your devotion to Christ is saying something to your kids. It's either worth following or it isn't. It really makes a difference or it doesn't. They're the hope of the future. Train the next generation, but realize God uses different people. We don't all have to be the same way. We don't all have to do the same thing. Whatever it is God has gifted you to do, challenged you to do, wants you to do, do it with all your heart. Do it to the glory of God, and God will influence the generation that you're a part of to make a difference in the world in which you live. We can't fix everything that's wrong in our country right now. We're receiving the results of walking away from God 50, 60 years ago. 
uh, it's become more evident all the time, and it'll only get worse if left to itself, unless there are enough people to say, I'm all in, I'll serve you, I'll live for you, I'll let our family be an example for you, I'll pick up the mantle for the next generation. So would you let God apply that message to your heart this morning? As we think of that story, even though it was 3,000 years ago, they made a difference in their generation. The Bible says these things are written for our example, that we might learn from them. What is it God wants to do through your life in your generation? And I'm going to ask us to take a moment, and let's bow our heads for a minute and pray, and really ask God to speak to your heart and say to you, what do I want you to do in your generation? And let him nail some specifics down. Maybe as a couple, we need to get along better. Maybe as parents, we need to be a better example. Uh, maybe as an individual, I need to be a stronger testimony for Christ at work or whatever. But uh, I'm going to extend this in a unique way in this service. I'm going to ask everybody since this is all about the next generation if you're under the age of 30 will you say God you can count on me in my generation I'm gonna love you I'm gonna live for you I'm gonna serve you the best I know how and would you come right now and pick up the mantle if you're under the age of 30 Will you come and do it right now and say, yeah, that's me, I'm in, I'll do it. God bless you. People are coming. Just say, excuse me if you're in the middle of a row. I want in on this. If you'll just take it and then stretch it out so everybody can hold a piece of it and say, yeah, I'm in on this, God. I want you to do something in this next generation. And then I'm going to ask all of you to step forward a little bit, let people in, turn around and kind of face the audience and uh, hold that out. I think it'll stretch even further possibly. And uh, there's no magic in it, but uh, it's symbolic. Wow, what a sign. This is the future, folks. This is the next generation. They're the ones that can teach their generation how to walk with God, how to love the Lord, how to make a difference. You may not always understand why they wear their hair the way they do. Uh, you may not always understand why they dress the way they do, why they like the music the way they do, uh, etc. But all of that's irrelevant. Culture changes, but human nature does not. God is tugging at hearts, tugging at lives, saying, I want to use you to my glory. Trust me. Walk with me. You can make a difference in the generation to come. Now, I'm going to ask us to pray for them in a moment, and uh, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things. If you're a parent of one of these young people, uh, if you'd like to come up here and stand near them or by them or with them, and you'll say, I'm going to support you in this. I'm going to pray for you. You come. Uh, if you say, well, man, they're older, they're in their 20s, their parents don't go here, but uh, as a church person from this church, I want to support them. I want to pray for them. I'm a friend or whatever. I'd like to come and pray for them. You just slip out and come right now. We're going to have a prayer of dedication for those that are here. 
God bless you. Just come on. And uh, ask God to protect you, to bless you, to guide you, to direct you, to use your lives to make a difference. This is the hope of the future right here, right now. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for every young person standing here, every man, every woman, that they might know you, that they might know your will for their lives, your direction for their life, and help them to begin with a heart that says, here am I, send me. Here am I, use me. And whatever you call them to, I pray that you'd use them powerfully to your glory. Help us in this generation to show the people of this community a better way of walking with God, following God, loving each other, encouraging each other, helping one another. I pray that you might give us a love for those that have moved to this community from other places that now call it home, those that are here temporarily because of a job or because they're in the service. God, I pray that you might give us a love for each other, no matter what our racial, social, personal differences are, that we might realize that in Jesus Christ, we're all brothers and sisters in the family of God. So we ask your blessing on that family today that we might live as your family, as your children, and that you might use us to influence our generation for the cause of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you don't really know the Lord. You've never made that real life-changing decision like I had to make as a kid in vacation Bible school. Maybe God's tugging at your heart today and saying, I want to come in and change everything for you. Pastor Jeff will close the service for us in a moment. Tell you how you can do that. Make sure you settle that with God today. And then I'm going to ask us all to stand together in the audience. Some of you are already putting your hand out toward these kids. And uh, many of you may want to do that. So let's all stand together. And uh, we're going to have a closing song. But during that song, you say, and I want to get in on this prayer uh, for their lives. You might just extend your hand toward them symbolically to say, hey, we're with you. God bless you all. Lord, we love you so much. God, I thank you for how you delivered us from the wilderness. Lord, we love you so much. God, I thank you for how you delivered your word to us through uh, my father-in-law, Papa Ed. Lord, I think of these, these uh, under 30-year-olds. Some of them are our children. Lord, when you brought my church into existence, your purpose for us was that every man, woman, and child could come to a place where they would know you. Lord, over the last seven years, there's been over 2,000 people that have done that. Lord, I pray that we would be white hot for you. God, I pray that every man, woman, and this child would find you, God. And I pray that we would, we would take this challenge, we would pick up this mantle, and we would say, not in our generation. Not in our generation. We would boldly step forward and just say, we're going to lock arms and charge the hill together. We're not going to quit. Whether times are good, whether they get scary, scary or not, God, we commit as a church 
that we're going to go after what you've called us to do. Lord, I thank you for today's service, unique, different uh, for us and how we're closing today. But Lord, we just celebrate you because Jesus, apart from you, we are nothing, we have nothing. God, I thank you that you solve life's biggest issues of sin, of pain, of sorrow, and of death. God, and Lord, I pray for every man, woman, and child here today that if, that if they're in one of those camps right now and they're still lost without you, separated from you, and today, God, you've moved our hearts, you've connected, you've, you've opened our hearts and minds to a place that we recognize we need you, we need a Savior, we need Jesus in our life. I, I pray right now that, that we would take the next step and we would trust in you by faith, simply by saying, Jesus, today, I want to make you the leader and forgiver of my life. Come into my heart right now and save me. Lord, through this last series, we've, we've seen you work. And heaven has been more crowded because of what you've done in this last five weeks in our church. God, we celebrate you today. And God, we receive the challenge. And we're going to say, God, that there's no accidents, that you brought us here for a purpose today. And God, we're just going to accept that the fact that you've brought us here, that you're sovereign, that you're placing a purpose in our life to follow you, to chase after you, and to leverage our stories for somebody else's forever. So, Lord, we love you. In your, ne- in your name we pray today. And we all said amen. Thank you guys for coming. We love you. I'm going to ask our host teams to come forward if we have anybody left back there to take an offering. We're going to pass some buckets right now. And let me just say, if you're, if you're a first-time guest today, we want you to be our guest. Uh, we do this thing we call an offering. That's how we kind of supply all the uh, necessary resources to do what our church does in our city and really across the globe. So if you're a guest today, we want you to be our guest. If you'd like to just drop off your visitor card today, we got some cool t-shirts on your way out. You can grab one or you don't have to grab one. Um, And let me just say this. If you're here today, and we always say this, if you're here today, and we'll dim the lights in just a minute and make it kind of of spooky around here because it's going to be dark. But if you're here today, and there's a dollar amount that's in that bucket, and you need it, we ask you to take it. All right? We want you to do that if you're in that place today and you need, you need some financial help. All right? Let me pray for this offering. God, I pray you'd use our stuff to change somebody else's forever. Thank you, Jesus, for blessing us. We thank you for blessing us in a city that we can serve alongside men and women who are military, who get deployed all over the globe. Some of them are watching today from Afghanistan, God. We ask you to bless them, watch over them, provide for them right now in the midst of battle. We thank you, Jesus, for loving us more than we deserve. In your name we pray, and everybody said amen.